you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. The last chapter. We are one sermon closer to lapping Pastor Joshua again. <laughs> I'm just playing. No, but it's true. In our last couple of sermons in Galatians, we've considered the work of the flesh. You can see it there in this chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. And we've considered the fruit of the Spirit there in verse 22. Now, there's a lot more going on than just a list of bad and good. Paul has been making an argument rooted in God's work in redemptive history across covenants and people. There's really a contrast here of Mosaic law and gospel. What we produced under the law and what God produces in us as we are in Christ. We've seen that the law is deficient in the sense that though it taught God's people how to be righteous, it couldn't actually justify them. Though it taught about the way of life, it couldn't actually give life. And though it taught God's people how to love, it couldn't actually produce love in them. And so Israel, God's old covenant people, they found themselves, though they'd come out of bondage from Egypt, they found themselves enslaved once again, this time under the power of sin as they were under the law. We saw Isaiah chapter 5 and Psalm 80 describe Israel like a vineyard. God had done everything externally necessary for Israel to flourish and to thrive. But when he went looking for fruit, expecting to see something, he saw worthless grapes. It was, as we described, she was a bad vine. What she needed was something more than external, more than the law. She needed to be recreated. And as we've seen with the law, weakened by the flesh could not do, God himself has done in the gospel. God has not only justified us, but given us life by his spirit. A life that is in conformity to his son. This is the fruit of the spirit. The Lord, the giver of life, takes up residence inside of us, producing life in the likeness of the son. Now, it would be a mistake, and this is where it ties in today, it would be a mistake to look at the fruit of the spirit and to only think about your own growth. Just looking again, just glancing at the works of the flesh, glancing at the fruit of the Spirit, notice how social they are, how communal they are. We're talking about two different types of people, Israel under the law, the church in or under the new covenant. So we're not so much individual plants or trees, but rather branches on the vine that is Christ. The Spirit is producing fruit in us as we belong to the greater vineyard that is Jesus and his people. We see that God is not just recreating persons, but a people who walk by the Spirit, a people who keep in step with the Spirit, and a people who help one another do so. It is not in isolation, but in the context of the community that we use the means of the Spirit to grow. It's in the context of the community that we actually experience the fruit of the Spirit, as we taste one another's love, as we rejoice in each other, as we're gentle with each other, and so on. This means that as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, we need to think not only about our own sanctification, but about the sanctification of the community, the church. We are cultivating not only our own fruit in our own life, but in the life of the church. Said differently, this means that we bear individual responsibility and corporate responsibility. This is what we'll be considering this morning. We have two points. That as we think about our walk with the Spirit, one, we are responsible for each other, and we are responsible for ourselves. We'll be considering this tension that 
in our journey from here to heaven, we are responsible for each other and we are responsible for ourselves. Responsible for each other, responsible for ourselves. If you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he is deceived. Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Amen. You can be seated. So first we're going to consider our responsibility toward one another. This is where we'll spend most of our time. We'll split it into two sub-points. In verse 1 we'll see that we're responsible for those in the community, in our church membership, we're responsible for those who are caught in sin. Verse 1, we're responsible for those caught in sin. And in verse 2, we'll see we're responsible for those who are caught under suffering. Okay, caught in sin, caught under suffering, starting with verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with the gentle spirit. This verse is loaded. Like who is responsible for who? Why are we responsible? What is our goal? How do we go about doing the work? Well, look first just at the few, first few words even. Brothers and sisters. It's just one word in the Greek, but it's paradigmatic for this whole section. It clarifies in a broader sense who we're responsible for and why. You see, we bear responsibility for one another because we belong to the same family. The same household. We have been washed by the same blood. We are indwelt by the same spirit. We have the same name. We share the same meal. We are a family. Now this is, as we've seen, Galatians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It's because we have been indwelt with the spirit of the Son. The spirit unites us to the Son. He makes everything that belongs to Jesus ours, including his relationship with the Father. He gives us his sonship. It changes in our relationship with God. He is not only creator and Lord, but Father. It also changes our relationship with each other. We become brothers and sisters in Christ. We see our mutual responsibility, it begins with this confession, that God is my Father, that Christ is my big brother, that his people are my siblings. The allegiance and affection that we owe to the Father and Son, it's familial, it flows down into our relationship with his children and more specifically with those with whom we are in covenant relationship with. Paul, I do not think, is calling us to restore every wandering Christian in the city of Memphis, not every wandering Christian in Midtown or even your neighborhood. He's writing to churches in Galatia. They would have known who their brothers and sisters were. We call this membership. It is the people we share the cup and the bread with. You see, membership tells us who we're responsible for. The term brothers and sisters tell us why. It's what families do. It's especially what this family does. The one led by the Spirit after the pattern of the Son, the one who left the 99. 
So Paul begins with this one word, translated brothers and sisters. It clarifies the who and the why. Families look after their own. But of course, something's happening here. He says if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing. Now, what does Paul mean by wrongdoing? If you recall in chapter 5, verse 16, Paul commands us to walk by the Spirit. It's also a promise. He says that if we walk by the Spirit, you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. It's a promise. The one who yields to the Spirit by faith will not indulge the flesh. They will not practice the works of the flesh. Instead, the Spirit produces new creation life in them. Okay, They yield to the Spirit. They get love and not hatred. They get patience and not outbursts of anger. They get peace and not strife. But what happens when someone... A professing Christian doesn't walk by the Spirit. They choose instead to carry out the desires of the flesh. And they do so time and time again. Right? They experience defeat after defeat in this war as they're giving into the deceitfulness of sin. What happens is they become entangled. They are overcome. Now, to be clear, I don't think this is not the same thing as practicing the works of the flesh. That person is we... Um, explain does so without remorse. There is no struggle. They happily indulge the flesh. There's no repentance. I think here there is struggle. This is why Paul uses the word they've been overtaken, overcome. And so there was some fight, yes, but the Christian by their own volition has given up. They've been overtaken by sin. They've come farther than they thought they would. It's as though they have been caught in a riptide. They swam in sin's waters thinking they would be okay, but they are not. They have slowly drifted in its current out to sea, a sea that intends to kill, and they need help. What started out perhaps they thought as a one-time thing has turned into habitual drunkenness or into a pornographic addiction, has turned into materialism and greed, has turned into embezzlement, has turned into regular verbal or even physical abuse. It could be a number of things. Paul says any wrongdoing. What are we to do with this person? Paul says, you who are spiritual, restore such a person. <sighs> He's just calling on the spiritual. <laughs> Some of you are maybe feeling relief. Paul's command is just for the spiritual. It's just for the elders or pastors, just with someone with a degree, just for someone who went through downline or KI, Maybe you're a D group leader. Maybe someone who listens to a lot of Ask Pastor John podcasts. This is, Paul is not calling on the varsity Christian to stand up. To be spiritual, I think we see from the book of Galatians, is to be indwelt by the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 5. It is to be a recipient of the promises made to Abraham, which we have through the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 14. It is to be adopted in Christ, which we have by the Spirit's indwelling. Chapter 4, verse 6. All of those things are positional. It's true of all of us who cling to Christ by faith. But then there's an active part we play that makes us spiritual. Chapter 5, verse 6, we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. We walk by the Spirit, 516. We are led by the Spirit, 518. We bear the fruit of the Spirit, 522. And we keep in step with the Spirit, 525. To be spiritual, I think, means to be alive by the Spirit and to keep in step with the Spirit. It is to be indwelt and empowered. If a Christian is not spiritual, they are an exception. It means that they are unhealthy. They are probably the one caught up in wrongdoing that needs rescuing. 
To not be a spiritual person is to be a person of the flesh, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. That's possible. It was the case with the Corinthians. But if you're growing in a healthy church, that is not you. You might even think about it this way. If you see someone, a brother or sister, who is overtaken by sin, they are entangled, and it grieves you in your heart just as it grieves the spirit that dwells within you and them, then it's time for you to get to work. Consider the goal, Paul says, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person. We see here the goal in confronting someone over their sin is restoration. It's to bring healing where there was brokenness. It means to bring something back to its original state. It does not mean to crush someone. It does not mean to shame someone, to ridicule someone. It means to be an agent of God's grace by calling someone out on their sin that they might come out of their sin. It is to bring someone back into life and joy, fellowship with the Father. Jesus speaks very similarly in Matthew chapter 18. There he walks through the steps of what we would call church discipline. This looks like the first step. They map onto each other um, pretty closely. Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now notice the similarities. We're talking about a brother or sister, someone in the covenant community. Their sin... Notice the goal is the same. It's restoration, to win them back over, to warn them of the consequences of their sin on this day and of unrepentant sin on that day. But notice the difference. In Matthew 18, Jesus is talking about someone who sinned against you. Like, obviously, you know about it. I think we can even understand the obligation. Like, they've sinned against you. If you don't deal with it, it might lead to bitterness in your own heart. Your love for them will be cooled. The unity of the church is at stake. It's like, okay, I see how I'm responsible in this situation. But in Galatians, someone hasn't necessarily sinned against you. Paul is just talking about someone who is habitually or seriously sinning against God. And because they're your brother or your sister, because you're indwelt by the same spirit, because you keep in step with the spirit and not the other way around, you get to work. You see, the spirit that is grieving within them is commanding you to restore them. Notice, brothers and sisters, that neither Paul nor Christ are making a suggestion. It is a command. If someone has seriously sinned against you there is, and there is no repentance, it's your job to confront them to win them over. If you hear about or see someone who is overcome by sin against God, it's your job to confront them that you might restore them. The stakes are high. Hear what James says in James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters... If any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from his error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. To turn someone, to restore someone, to win someone is to pull them off the path of death back on the path of life. This is our responsibility as church members It is our calling. It is our covenant obligation. Could you imagine if you went into the ER with a gunshot wound and it were fatal, right? If it's not dealt with, you're going to die. Now the staff notices you, nurses see you, 
doctors see you, you can even see them talking about you, and yet no one will talk to you about your wound. It would be a shame to their calling, to their work, to their oath, to their responsibility. When you see or hear about a brother or sister overcome by sin, threatening ruin and destruction upon themselves, you don't pretend not to notice. You don't gossip about it with other members. You get to work because it's your calling. It is your responsibility. It is the oath you made in our covenant. It's why we're here. We are all sick and in need of help. And the Lord intends to use us as his physicians for the soul in this hospital for sinners. Brothers and sisters, we made this commitment when we joined the church. We renew it every time we take the Lord's Supper. Our covenant reads this way. We will exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully encourage and admonish one another as occasion may require. That's not the pastor's job description. That's our job description, our responsibility, our calling and oath. Brothers and sisters, do you care about the spiritual well-being of your family? Do you care enough? Do you love them enough to confront them over their serious or habitual sin? This might even be a better starting point. Do you know your brothers and sisters well enough that if they were overcome in sin, you would know? That they might even trust you enough to hear from you? You see, it's in the context of life that we see, that we notice spiritual need and danger. It's when you're spending time with that sister on the weekends, you notice she has a tendency to drink too much when you go out. Or it's when you and that brother are together, you notice he has a tendency to slander others. That when you spend time with that family, you notice this father is harsh with his children and provokes them to anger. We're not talking about a witch hunt. We're talking about as we keep in step with the Spirit, we're walking with other Christians and sometimes we fall down and we need help up. You see, it is not enough to practice church membership. Our desire is to practice meaningful membership. It's not enough to call each other brother and sister. We must do the work of brotherly love. We exercise an affectionate care in watchfulness. It is not a suggestion. It is a command. When you see a brother or sister overcome, overtaken, entangled by sin, first you pray. Then you confront them with God's word about their sin. Right? We're not talking about a cultural difference, a pet peeve, a character quirk. We're talking about them being overcome by that which seeks to destroy them. Your intent is to help them get out from underneath it. The goal is restoration. It is holiness that brings healing. Because the goal is restoration, don't miss this, it's not enough just to speak the truth. You see, the goal is not proclamation, it's restoration. It's not just that you tell someone the truth, but how you do it. Look at verse one again, Paul says to restore such a person with a gentle spirit. You'll recall that gentleness, it's a fruit of the spirit. It means to be able to handle someone with gentleness or care because you know their frame. As a fruit of the spirit, it is a product of the spirit's life in us as he's conforming us to the image of his son. Is not Christ Jesus gentle? Matthew chapter 12, verse 20. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick. 
Or in the words of the call to worship this morning, Jesus called you to him. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus cares for the weak. He handles us with gentleness. You see, we don't treat the sinner with gentleness despite their sin, but because of it. We understand that they have been rebelling against God, that they have been seeking to find life in that which kills, that they are clinging on life support. We handle them with tenderness and care. We know their frame. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean we don't speak the truth. We must. It is God's word, the clarity of his word that God uses, that the Spirit uses to convict and to sanctify us. And our words ought to match, our words and our tone ought to match the severity of the situation. That sometimes means we speak with sternness, but we always do so with gentleness for a brother and sister. The reality is we probably all lean one way or the other. Some of us think as long as we've spoken the truth, we've done our job. Like every problem is a nail to be hit with a hammer. The problem with those kind of people, people like us, is we leave a wake of destruction behind us. We're not talking about problems, we're talking about people. What good is our courage if we crush those we're aiming to restore? Some of us are prone to gentleness. We can't stand confrontation. And so we don't speak the truth. Brothers and sisters, there is no such thing as silent restoration. Leaving someone to die in their sin is not compassionate, it's cowardly. But we see that there can be no restoration apart from both. The same spirit that inspires scripture, that gives us a spirit of power, produces the fruit of gentleness within us. I think gentleness is really the litmus test for our motives in rebuke. It will reveal what you're really after. Whether you're trying to restore or ruin, whether you're trying to care or crush, whether you are trying to hurt or heal. We are called to restore one another in a spirit of gentleness, to speak the truth in love. So we see that it is the spiritual who are called to restore, the one who's overcome. It comes with a couple caveats. The first is we're supposed to do it in care, that is gentleness. And then we're supposed to proceed with caution. Notice the command comes with a warning. Looking at verse 1 again, Paul says, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. You see, the work of restoration, it's dangerous because it can lead to temptation. I think this is true in at least a couple ways. First, maybe more obviously, you can be tempted into their sin. Like as you go to help a brother or sister off from the ledge of the cliff, you yourself lose your footing. Think about it. Paul has demonstrated that the law, which encapsulates the righteousness of God, that when our flesh hears the law, it's inflamed towards sinful desire. That's when you're hearing about something that's good and holy and righteous. Think about what's going to happen to your flesh when you hear about sin. Right? When someone's covenant eyes report comes across your computer, you can be inflamed towards lust, tempted towards lust. When you go to confront someone about their anger and wrath that they're causing division, you might be tempted toward wrath yourself. 
We see that restoration is messy. You have to get in the muck, in the tangle to help untangle your brother or sister. And in doing so, you might find yourself trapped. And so we must proceed with caution, with humility. And I think the second thing that Paul is getting after is he's concerned that in our helping our brother or sister in sin that we would be inclined toward pride. That we'd be tempted to pride. I say this because of chapter 5 verse 26. Let us not be conceited. He says this right after he's describing life in the spirit. And then because of what we'll see in verses 3 and 4 in a second. You see, when we see a brother or sister in sin, when we help them out, we can be tempted towards self-righteousness. We thank God that we're not like them. And after we're done helping them, we think, now who else needs my help? This is why the work must be taken by the spiritual, those who are empowered by the Spirit, following the Spirit's lead. The Spirit will keep us away from the desires of pride and entanglement. So we see that this work is dangerous. It's our calling. But we're to help those in sin. We're also to help those who are caught under suffering. This is our second subpoint. We are to help those who are caught under suffering. We see this in verse 2. Paul commands us, carry one another's burdens. Carry one another's burdens. I think this is a broader principle that upholds what we see in verse 1. It can be sin, but I think we're talking about something more general here. Any kind of suffering that would weigh someone down. Anything that makes our journey to heaven hard. It could be sin, it could be chronic illness or physical pain, it could be a broken marriage, it could be a difficult relationship with your children, it could be lost loved ones, unemployment or poverty, it could be dissatisfaction at work, it could be habitual depression or anxiety, it could be unanswered prayers and discontentment. We're talking about the pain of life that makes walking with the Spirit difficult. Now, this is quite obvious, but it's easier to walk when you're not holding a burden. And the heavier the burden, the harder it is to walk. And God helps us in at least two ways. Ephesians 3.16, Paul prays this for the church there in Ephesus. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. God grants us power by his spirit to walk with our struggles. And another that's internal, another thing that God does for us externally is he gives us the church to bear those burdens. Not only do we not have to walk alone, but others, God is commanding, calling them to carry the load with us. See, living in a fallen world, we all have burdens. No one is excluded. This is not a fleshly versus spiritual thing. We all experience the pain of sin and the curse. The joy, the beauty of the Christian walk It's not just knowing where we're going to a place where there will be no pain. It's not just that we don't have to walk alone. It's that the Spirit empowers His people to help each other get there. And we do this by bearing one another's burdens. I mentioned this last week, but we recently moved into a home, a new house. We have this huge, I mean huge, upright piano. The guys are there, they're laughing, they know. It's like the double-decker bus of pianos. (laughs) Many a tree were killed into the going of making this piano. Now, we had probably eight or so guys helping move on that day, you know, and some things you carry by yourself, maybe some things you carry two people. This was seriously like an eight-person job. And so at any one time, there were probably four to six guys on the piano. It's seriously that heavy. The other guys are calling out directions, they're moving things out of the way, they're getting the felt pads ready. Um... 
Guys are coming in and out as we're squeezing through the doorway. The point is, we were all involved in the work, even if it wasn't our piano, and we were all involved in the work, even if we weren't all bearing the same amount of weight. This is how the church ought to work. First, someone needs to make their burden known. Like, we can't help you carry something we don't know about it. Then, after making it known, we all ought to get involved in prayer. Just as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, we're praying that God would, by his spirit of power, strengthen them to walk. Then all of us continue to be involved, we should, by regularly texting or emailing or calling, by talking at the gathering, encouraging one another with God's word. And then some guys, like on the piano, will step in to carry the weight for a long period of time. Depending on the burden, this will look like different things if it's providing meals or a place to stay or just presence. Others will come in for short periods of time, provide relief. What you see is that the whole church together is coming in to bury or to bear the burden of this person, even if they're carrying different levels of weight. We're trying to make sure that this brother or sister is not hampered in their journey to heaven. The burden ought to become the church's burden, it is a command. This is what we committed to, our church covenant. Again, we will participate in each other's joys and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. Brothers and sisters, are you seeking to bear other burdens in this body? Are you making your burdens known to others? I think one of the things that can hold us back is we feel like we'll be a burden. You will be a burden. Paul is calling us to cast those burdens upon one another that we might joyfully participate in Christ's love toward us, which we'll see in a second. The burden of your siblings ought to become yours even as theirs become yours. We should seek to bear the burden of a single sister fostering in the body, to bear the burden of members struggling with anxiety and depression, to bear the burden of broken cars and houses that are broken into to bear the burden of new life and of past life, to bear the burden of being a minority in a majority church, to bear the burden of loneliness. The church ought to be a safe place for baggage. Like we look like an airport terminal in here. <laughs> the difference is instead of only looking for our own baggage, we're to help one another. We are to carry them with each other to the river's edge where we will need them no more. If that sounds like work to you, it is. You see, helping those who are struggling is hardly, if ever, convenient. We are not being called into convenience. No one wakes up thinking, I want to make today harder for me. Like I want to give up my money, my car, my home, my weekend, my emotional wallet. You see, when you stop to help someone to carry their load, you are invariably slowing yourself down. You're taking on a burden that you didn't once have. It's not convenient, but we're not called to convenience. In 2016 at the World Series triathlon race, this is like the World Cup for triathlons. A British racer, Johnny Brownlee, was towards the end of the race, so he's already swam and cycled, he's in the running portion. He's got about half a mile left, and he has a huge lead, huge lead. His margin is so large that the announcers are talking about how happy they are for him. Like he's done everything he needed to win. They're saying the world title is his. Well, with about 400 meters left, something happens. 
he starts not looking well. You know this if you've ever seen someone's body fail them at the end of a race, right? He starts running sideways. One of the announcers even says he doesn't know where he's at. He can hardly keep his legs underneath him, but he's trying with all that he has to make it to the edge of the finish line. With about 200 meters left, he actually stops. One of the officials on the side grabs him, I think because they're worried he's going to do damage to himself. So he was in the lead. He was destined for gold. Two other athletes who were behind him no doubt have been watching him this whole time. They come around the corner, and whereas they thought they were fighting for silver, now they see they can fight for gold. And then something remarkable happens. One of the athletes is also a Brit, his teammate. But he's not just a Brit, he's his brother, Alistair. He runs up to Johnny, and he picks him up, and he starts running with him. He's doing everything he can to keep, Alistair is doing everything he can to keep Johnny up and to keep him running as he's trying to fall down and is running in the other direction. But he's doing everything he can to get him over the finish line. One of the announcers says, I don't think I've ever seen this before. I don't even think it's legal. The other announcer says, I don't think he cares. Now the athlete in fourth place is gaining on the Brownlee brothers. He's close to overtaking them. Alistair, who's given up his shot for gold, brings Johnny to the finish line and throws him in first. He takes silver. Alistair settles for bronze. And yet he won something more meaningful that day, his brother. You see, he was not in Alistair's plans that day to blow up his chances for gold. But there was a commitment, a responsibility, an affection that runs deeper than his own goals or aspirations in its brotherly love. Alistair happily, joyfully took on his brother's burden. They became his own. Brothers and sisters, this is what we are called to do, to help one another on our way to heaven, to shoulder each other, even as it sometimes makes our own race harder. Why do we do this? Verse two, carry one another's burdens, In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. In doing so, we follow after the pattern of Christ, the one who took on our burdens and made them his very own. He, the omnipotent one, took on the frailty of humanity. He, the covenant Lord, submitted himself to the covenant obligations. He, the righteous one, the innocent one, took our sins upon the cross. He, the Lord of life, died for sinners that we might live. Christ bore our burdens as our brother. He is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And he calls us to participate in a similar work. His work, of course, is unique in that he made atonement for sins. But he's calling us into the same kind of laying down of our lives in love. You see, he fulfilled the Mosaic law where we couldn't that we might be able to actually fulfill the covenant of love or the law of love. Jesus tells us this in John 13. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You see, the Mosaic law, it taught us to love. It required us to love 
but it couldn't actually produce that love in us and it didn't demonstrate it for us. God has done both in the gospel, in an act of unthinkable love. God himself bore the burdens of his enemies to make them his children. Friends, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are attending this morning and you're not a Christian, consider that God himself bore the punishment for your sins and he offers you newness of life this morning. It comes as a gift to be received by faith and repentance. Christian, notice what God has called us into. He's not only saved us by love, he's called us into the responsibility of love. We see we bear responsibility towards others. We also bear a kind of final, more final responsibility for ourselves. We come to our last point briefly. We are responsible for ourselves. Verse 3 For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I'll be honest, verses three, four, and five were very difficult to understand, I think. I really labored over this. But I'm going to tell you what I think they mean. I think Paul is building off of chapter five, verse 26. There he tells us not to become conceited. Okay? He's also um, building off of the temptation toward pride as we're helping others. It seems as though Paul is concerned that in our growing in the spirit, we can become haughty. We can wrongly attribute the Spirit's work to ourselves. Okay, we can think what is a gift was produced by us. Verse 2, of course, he warns us to be watchful so that we're not tempted into pride. You see, in the process of helping others who are overcome by sin and weighed down by burdens, we can be tempted to think we're something in and of ourselves apart from Christ, when really, apart from him, we are nothing. You see, in looking at our brother or sister who has fallen down, we can be tempted to think ourselves pretty high. In offering to shoulder their burden, we can think ourselves to be pretty strong. We fail to recognize that all that we have has come from God. He created us, he sustains us, he called us, he justifies us, he adopted us, he recreated us, he indwells us by his spirit, he's the one who prunes and makes us fruitful. Apart from him, we are nothing. And so if you look at your brother or sister in need and you think that they are nothing, you are deceived. Now to be clear, in Christ you are something, right? You are a son or a daughter. You are an heir to the throne. You are part of new creation. But all that comes as a gift. What is Christ by his right? He gives you by grace. I think what Paul is saying here is that we will be tempted to think we deserve it all. We stopped the flesh. We made the fruit we won the war, right? In doing so, we've not come as far from the Judaizers' theology as we thought. Paul goes on, verse four, let each person examine his own work and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. So it seems that if we compare ourselves to others, we will be tempted to some kind of self-exaltation. But Paul is saying that when we examine our own work, okay, not in comparison to others, and also we're not measuring ourselves against ourselves. Paul says, 2 Corinthians um, chapter 10, verse 12, that if we measure ourselves by ourselves or compare ourselves by ourselves, that we lack understanding. Okay, so we're not comparing ourselves to others, we're not measuring ourselves by our own standard, but as we measure ourselves by God's standard, which is his word, it can be possible to actually boast. Now, that doesn't, Sound right at first? What does Paul mean? He doesn't mean 
boasting in the flesh. Okay, these are the works that we try to accomplish apart from Christ and his spirit. If you look further down in verse 13, Paul is going to talk about how the Judaizers, they want you to be circumcised so that they can boast in your flesh, even though they themselves can't keep the law. And then Paul is going to talk about his own kind of boasting. Verse 14, he says, As for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world for both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is new creation. So I think to examine your own work means to see God's grace in your life in such a way that it leads to joy. It leads to boasting. Okay, so as you examine your life, again, you're not comparing yourselves to others. You're comparing yourselves to God's holy standard. You're seeing the evidence of God at work. You're seeing new creation fruit. It's like in that situation where I normally would have. A year ago, I would have used my words to cut them down. Instead, I was kind. Praise God, that was his work, I boast. Or last night, I was stressed, I was up later than I should be. In the past, I would have indulged the flesh. Instead, I prayed, I read God's word, I went to bed, I had self-control. That was the work of God, I boast. Where I would have had an outburst of anger, there was patience. Where there would have been anxiety, there was peace. Again, we're not comparing ourselves to others, we're taking an honest assessment of our lives and seeing the tangible fruit of new creation and we're boasting, not in the self because of the self, we're boasting in the self because of God. All glory and honor be to him. This is boasting in the cross. This is boasting in new creation. We are seeing what matters. And then Paul in verse 5 gives us the reason, another reason why we shouldn't be comparing ourselves to others. He said, drawing off the same imagery that he's been using, for each person will have to carry his own load. Now this is future tense. Most commentators believe um, that it's a reference to final judgment. Okay, so here's a bit of a paradox. We are responsible to help one another. You're responsible for your brothers and sisters with their burdens here as they make their way there. They too are responsible to help you with your burdens here as you make your way there. But on that day, no one can help you. No member of NBC will be there to shoulder your burden. You will give an account to God for your life, for your faith, for your stewardship of what he's given you, for your ministry, each person will have to carry his own load. Now to be clear, if you are in Christ, you've been justified. You heard a foreshadow of the final verdict this morning, the assurance of pardon. God has blotted out your sins and remembers them no more. It is a gift. Christ Jesus himself has bore our biggest burden, our sin in the most meaningful sense. And yet, true faith perseveres. It must. And yet, while faith alone saves, it is never alone. It must be accompanied by works. So on that day, we will stand fully clothed in Christ. We will hear righteous, and yet there will still be a judgment. For the Christian, it will be great joy as we hear our sins and find that they are forgiven. Every single fault. And the Lord will hold us accountable for the deeds that we have done. For the good deeds we have done in Christ, we will be rewarded. We no one can bear that burden for us on that day. Until that day, we walk by the Spirit where he leads us by his power, and we don't have to walk alone. We walk with each other. We help one another get to heaven by the power of the Spirit. 
And at the end of the race, we will indeed receive our great reward, Christ himself and his love. Let's pray.